Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, before I start tonight, I do want to give some um, reflections on the election um, and I'm not going to say a lot about politics because I don't think that's my place as pastor to make a judgment one way or the other, and you don't need to know how I voted and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I do want to say that just scripturally, one of the things that we need to remember is First Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So a couple things about whoever's president. Number one, we're supposed to pray for that leader. Even if it's somebody that we don't like or somebody that we like or somebody we agree with or don't agree with, we are called to pray for that leader. So President-elect Trump is our, going to be our new president. So what, regardless of how you feel about him, he's going to be our president, and we need to be praying for him. But also that passage of Scripture says that we are to live dignified and godly, quiet lives. And so one of the things that we should be doing as Christians is not gloating or being triumphal about who's in power especially on social media uh, because there are probably half the country that doesn't like what's going on and we need to be sensitive to those that are different because we all live in one big nation so i would encourage you to not get so excited over whoever's in power that you put your hope in a political party and not in Jesus. Is a political party going to change people's hearts? No. Will a political party at times be used by God to bring about good in the United States? Yes. Should you vote and should you be involved? Yes. We're going to talk a little bit about that later on tonight. Also, regardless of who is president... Yeah, Jesus is the king. <laughs> Regardless, okay. I've been saying that all over Facebook. All right. I just said it in my head and then you said that. Sorry. That's good. <laughs> Regardless of whoever is your leader, our leader, one thing I want to remind you, and this is this is this is my part of my Facebook post today, so you can go read that if you're friends on Facebook. If not, you can friend me and I'll friend you back. Um, Proverbs twenty one one. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So whoever our leader is, God is sovereignly directing that person's path to accomplish God's will. Also, let us remember that America is not our true home. Where's our true home? Heaven. We are, as Peter says, elect exiles. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That passage of Scripture says we're chosen by God the Father, we were bought with the blood of Christ, and we've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, 
and it's for obedience to Jesus. And so our ultimate goal in life is to live for the glory of Christ as elect exiles. What is an exile? Somebody that doesn't belong. So we truly don't belong here. But while we're passing through on our way to heaven, we are to be obedient to Jesus and live for Him. So regardless of who's president, regardless of who's in power, what's our mission? Display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and disciple for God's great commission. Regardless of what country you live in, regardless of who's a leader, that's our ultimate mandate. Also, our country is more divided than it's ever been. I'm sure other generations probably said that too. But I want to give you a passage of Scripture that talks about how the gospel breaks down dividing walls. Ephesians 2, 13-14, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility is real in our nation because of sin, prejudice, depravity, whatever. The only way that there's going to be healing is not through power politics, but through the blood of Christ. And we are ambassadors of Jesus to be sharing that. So, God may use the government to accomplish good, but the transformation of people's hearts, He's given exclusively to the church. So we cannot abdicate our role at a time such as this to leave it up to the powers that be to try to change things when true change is going to come through the gospel. Yes. Just a quick note, uh, uh, year, um, when our government was first founded, they used to have church services before they went and started making law. And these church services were to bring Democrats and Republicans together. It used to be at, in all the government buildings. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people don't realize that's, that's how they got along and made things work way, way back when they founded this nation. Yeah. That's a long way back. (laughs) So regardless of how the outcome of the election worked for you, that's between you and your conscience and your vote, um, I don't think we should be triumphant. I don't think we should be depressed. However it is, no matter who who wins an election, our goals as Christians is to to follow Christ, obey the gospel. He's sovereign, and the gospel is still the answer. So regardless of who's in power, Regardless of what country you're in, there's a mandate for Christians that transcends all of that. So there's my little piece on the election. You guys ready to dive into Ecclesiastes? All right. Chapter 8. We're going to get through one full chapter tonight. So let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and get more confused. No, I'm just joking. All right. Everybody there? Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, 
for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that's done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though, an evil does, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity, and I can enjoy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done under earth, neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Okay, you're looking at me with some confused thoughts here. What's the main point of chapter 8? Here's the main point of chapter 8. There's two things that he's telling us here, so I've broken this down into two statements, okay? That's why there's a comma in between there. There's two thoughts. We should diligently seek wisdom in order to survive in this sinful world, comma, yet we need to realize our limitations. So he's telling us two things tonight. Number one, the first part of that sentence, diligently seek wisdom. Seek wisdom, pursue wisdom, pray for wisdom, ask for wisdom diligently. But the second thing he tells us is, at the end of the day, for those of you that want all the answers, you're not going to get it. There's limitations. God's not going to give you every answer. So there's nothing wrong with pursuing wisdom. You're supposed to do that. Yet realizing at the same time, God may not give you all the answers and you have to live with that mystery and that limitation. So, the first thing he tells us to do is very interesting, especially since today's the day after the election. It's really weird how this all worked out. Seek wisdom in submitting to the government. Verses 1 through 5. He, 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 he um, sets it up by asking the question, who's like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. He's praising wisdom here. He's saying, it's an awesome thing to know wisdom, to know the interpretations of things, to know the meanings of things. Wisdom makes your face shine. Wisdom is a good thing to have. When your face shines in the Old Testament, it was a way of saying that God was blessing you. Wisdom is to be pursued. It makes your face shine. That's why Proverbs 15, 13 says, A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. So, you live in a fallen world. 
pursue wisdom. It's a good thing. But notice how he frames it. Verse 2, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Okay. In the immediate context here, what Solomon is addressing is a king who is impulsive, unpredictable, and powerful, but does whatever he wants. How do you respond to a king that you may not like? A king who's out of control? A king who is, quote-unquote, the sovereign of the land? God's kept an oath to that man. In that day and age when a king was anointed, you as a good Israelite had to swear an oath to that king that you would pledge allegiance to that king. So what happens if you pledge allegiance to a king that's a bad king? What's Solomon saying? You still have to submit to the governing authorities of that king. So we should diligently pursue wisdom in a fallen world, but how does this translate into how we respond to the government? How do we respond to the government? Wayne Grudem has written a book called Politics According to the Bible, and I'm going to borrow these five things from him, but he gives five wrong views about Christians and government. So these are wrong views that we as Christians should have towards the government or wrong views that the government should have towards Christians that aren't biblical. Okay, so these, this is coming from Wayne Grudem's book. So let me address these five wrong views and then we'll get to the right view. Okay, all right. So here's view number one that's wrong. Government should compel or force religion. That's a wrong view, right? This is the whole idea that the state thinks it has the power to mandate down to all of its citizens what they should believe in religious matters. Now, where do we see that today? In Islamic nations with Sharia law, where they say this is what you're going to believe. But this happened back during the days in Europe, like the Thirty Years' War in the 1600s between Protestants and Catholics. Each group was trying to dominate the other, especially in Germany, where they tried to force people to believe a certain way. Nowadays, we have Sharia law in places like Saudi Arabia, where everybody's compelled to follow Islam. That was never the intention of the Declaration of Independence, to have the government force what we should believe. Listen to the words of Thomas Jefferson in his 1779 Virginia Act for Establishing Religious Freedom. This was um, a precursor to the First Amendment. Really, James Madison was the main architect of the First the Bill of Rights, but he worked in concert with Thomas Jefferson and a Baptist pastor. Okay, so here's what he says. Be it therefore acted by the General Assembly that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, 
place or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened to suffer on account of his religious opinion or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and maintain their opinions in matters of religion. That's actually a lot stronger than the Bill of Rights because he expands that whole idea that the government should not compel, force, mandate, molest, harass you to believe anything religiously and you should not be persecuted or harassed or molested or forced because of what you believe. Okay, so let's look at the biblical response that comes from Jesus. So let's go to Matthew chapter 22. Stay in Ecclesiastes because we're going to come back to it. We're going to take this detour here on, on how to relate to government. Because Solomon says, respect the king, even if you don't like the king. Be wise in the way you act towards, and by, and, and by extension, we don't have kings, we have United States government and governing authority. So, so how do we as Americans respond to the, the, the nation we're in? So Matthew chapter 22, 15 through 22. Matthew 22, 15 through 22. What does Jesus say? The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him and his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness as inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went his way. What's Jesus saying there? There's two spheres of influence, right? There's Caesar's, i.e. the government's, and there is God's. There's certain things that are under the control of the government and there are certain things that God's in charge of that the government should not be involved in. Okay? So, what Jesus is saying is, therefore, things that are God's are not to be controlled by the government. The government should not force a particular religion but give freedom of religion to to people to practice what belongs to God. God. Give Caesar what Caesar's. What do we owe Caesar? Taxes, respect, obedience to the law. Does the government have any jurisdiction over houses of worship? Does the government have a right to tell you how to interpret the Bible? Tell you what denomination to belong to? Tell you you should be a Christian or not? Okay? So, the government doesn't have the right to do that, but here's the flip side, I think, that we need to be, be aware of, too. Here's an even greater argument. You cannot force someone to believe in Christianity just by making it a state religion of the nation. Can genuine faith be forced? Let me give you guys a little bit of history. Does anybody know what happened in 413 A.D.? 
Yes. Um, you're a little bit, it's actually Constantine. Yeah, it's the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan is where um, the Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Okay, so like if you look at church history from about the 200s to the 300s, especially in that time frame, there's a lot of persecution going on against Christians. So like Christians are being torched, they're being persecuted, they're having to go underground, there's a lot of pressure. Um, and there's a lot of debate about how Constantine became a Christian. Was he really a Christian? He was sympathetic to Christianity. And so the Edict of Milan said, from here on out in the Roman Empire, Christianity is the official state-mandated religion. Which means what now? Everybody has to become Christian. You are born Christian. You cannot be Muslim. You cannot be pagan. You cannot be a Goth or a Visigoth or an Ostrogoth or a Saxon. You have to be Christian. It was mandated. This gave rise in Europe for the next... What was the year on that? 413? From 413 to about... Let's say like the French Revolution, the 1700s, when Europe started breaking up into free, free nations. So we're almost talking, what, 1,300 years in Europe of state-mandated religion and the growth of the Roman Catholic Church in tandem with the government. That's why everybody that was born had to be baptized as an infant so they could keep records of population. They didn't care so much that you were being baptized for religious reasons. That was how they kept record of your population. That's how they kept record of your your birth certificate for the nation. So this is what happened in Europe when religion was forced. And guess what happened? When you force religion, what happens? Is it true? Can you have a whole nation going through the motions of Christianity but not actually truly being Christian in their heart? So... The government can't force religion and the government can't restrict you from practicing religion. Render under Caesar. What's Caesar's? Surrender. What was that? You find America and go there for as long as we've got freedoms. Okay. All right. So that's, that's wrong view number one, that the government should force religion. Okay. This is the flip side. Here's wrong view number two. Government should exclude religion. This is the view that is probably more prevalent in our nation. This is the view of the secular atheists who want no religion at all to be practiced in the public square. We see groups such as the ACLU and Americans United for Separation of Church and State wanting no expression of religion at all in America. Now, what's the argument that they're going to say? Here's what they're saying. You are free to have religious beliefs. Keep those private. Do not let those out into the marketplace. Do not have an opinion on moral issues. That's between you and your deity or you and your religion. Don't bring it into the public sphere. So how does that affect morality in in passing laws? When the laws or culture goes against the Bible, you can't be silent 
they want you to be silent and say, just live with it privately. My question is, as a Christian, can you just deal with stuff privately? It affects how you live your life, how you interact, we as a church, how we operate. And so what does the First Amendment actually say? What does it say? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech. There's two things there, right? They can't establish a religion, but they can't prohibit the free exercise. What's the free exercise of religion? You privately in your house having your beliefs? What's the free exercise in a free country right now under our Constitution? You have the constitutional right to express your religion in the public square however you see fit. Now, as Christians, we've got to be comfortable with other religions being able to do that. Because if they start taking it away from others and picking and choosing which religions get to express, then whoever's in power is going to make the rules. So be very, very careful when you see any group in America, regardless of what religion they are, having that religious freedom infringed upon. It's not just a protection of Christian religion. Our Constitution protects all expressions of religion, which is total freedom, right? No other country really has what we have. So right now, the bottom line is, as long as we have a Constitution... That's probably a bad... We have a constitution. And I am a purist when it comes to the... I'm just kind of getting political here. I'm a purist when it comes to the constitution, and I believe that it is not a living document. It has a meaning that the original framers of the constitution intended, and that does not change. Now, it's not inspired scripture like the Bible, so obviously there's a way to amend the Constitution. If the Constitution was binding, we'd still have slavery. So obviously it's able to be amended, but I also think that right now, while we still have the freedoms, we should be able to live under the protections of the Constitution in a free society. Um, That may not be very long, even with the Constitution because judges and activists are reinterpreting what the First Amendment means. That's why the ACLU and these other groups are coming in saying no expression of religion. Okay, So that's, that's view number two that's wrong about how we relate to government. Number three, government is demonic and evil. This is kind of a minority view. There's not many who hold to this, maybe like the Quakers and the Amish. These are like the extreme groups that would say, You know, getting involved in the military, total pacifist, all human governments are evil, so let's just kind of cloister ourselves away and not be involved at all. I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to serve in the military. Um, I don't know how you operate that way because you still have to obey traffic laws. If government is evil and you run a red light and you get, you smash somebody and you go to court, can you plead, well, I think the government's evil? What's the government going to say to you? You just committed an evil by breaking our laws. So practically it doesn't really work. Were you going to say something, Don? How does that work like in their own... Because everybody ends up having government. Exactly. 
Yeah. There is an order, and that's and that's that's the logic of it. I tell you what, with the exception of some like Lord of the Flies type experience, you've seen those movies where people are stranded on a desert island. You put some teenagers in a room and say, "Okay, there's going to be a natural leader that's going to emerge, right? And there's going to be somebody that takes charge, and there's going to be somebody that's following. There's going to be the worker bees, and there's going to be the queen bee." And there's going to be structure, regardless of how it's organized, there's going to be some type of structure and leadership, some type of government, because we automatically tend towards wanting some type of structure. I think anarchy is a myth. I think if people really wanted anarchy, they wouldn't last for it very long. Because anarchy says, JR, your car's mine, I'm going to take it. There are no laws. What are you going to say? Uh, I don't think so. And then we're going to fight over it, and then you're going to get mad at me and shoot me, and then my wife's going to come after you and shoot you, and then your wife's going to, and then we're just going to start shooting each other and stealing each other, and everybody's like, let's go for anarchy. We're so free. We're going to destroy ourselves. It doesn't make sense. Okay? All right, so here's, that's probably not a view that most people hold. Some extreme groups would hold that. Okay? All right, view number four. Just do evangelism only. Don't get involved in politics. Okay? Now, don't hear me wrong. We need to do evangelism. Why do we need to do evangelism? Because those who are dead in sin will not be converted to Christ through legislation, only through the power of the gospel. Okay? Romans 1.16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, there are some pastors out there that say all Christians should ever do is get involved in evangelism, never get involved in politics, which to its logical extension would mean don't vote. If God calls you to run for office, don't do that. Don't get involved in any type of civic organization. Don't ever sign a petition. Don't ever get involved in any type of human government. God's going to change things through the gospel. Now, let's make a category distinction here. Can the government change hearts? No, only the gospel changes hearts. But can the government change things and make life better and do things that are just? and fight for righteousness, and do things that are moral in a society without making people Christians, just making it a better place to live, okay? So if we're trusting in the Republicans or Democrats to make life better in America and bring about the heart transformation and Christian values you want to see, our hope is in the wrong place. Only Christ can do that. But with that being said, if you trace church history, it has been the Christians who have made the biggest strides in cultures in bringing about justice. In the early church, 200s, 300s, infanticide was very, very prominent. They would just kill babies. They didn't like them. Christians were bothered by that and they began adopting babies. Christians started hospitals Christians started helping the poor. So there's a lot of things that you can do through the government to make changes in society. 
What did William Wilberforce do in England? Remember who William Wilberforce was? Yes. He freed the slaves. He was a strong Christian man who used his position in Parliament to argue against slavery based upon Christian principles, and slavery was ended in England. Now, if he didn't do that, was he preaching the gospel? Not necessarily, but was he trying to better society for a class of people based upon biblical principles through the government? Yes. So if Christians adopted the idea, let's just do evangelism and never do politics, there may be some atrocities that go on in governments that would continue without anybody getting involved in the political process to stop those. So we should get involved in politics, but just realize that politics is not going to to change hearts. It may change things and make life better and make, America a better place to live and bring social justice, but it's not going to bring about salvation. Okay, Now, here's view number five, which is the exact opposite. Just do politics, but not evangelism. Okay, This is kind of an extreme view of the moral majority or the Christian right. Uh, this is the view that only politics will change the laws in society and usher in a better place for us to live. If we just passed the right laws, if we just got the right Supreme Court justice, if we just got the right president, if we just got both houses of Congress and the right president, if they were all on this one particular party, then things will change. Is that guaranteed? Are we guaranteed to have any change from here forward just because Trump's president and we have two houses that are up? Are we agree? Now, hopefully you'll see them working together, but there's not, things are not going to change ultimately through government. Okay, so if there's going to be any true revival and spiritual awakening and conversion of sinners, it will be because the sovereign God is moving in hearts and lives to bring about gospel transformation. Okay, now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Stay in Ecclesiastes. We're still talking about government here. We'll get back to Ecclesiastes in a minute, but I wanted to take this government discussion because I think Ecclesiastes tells us how to be wise and how you act towards the government. 1 Peter 2, 9-17. through 17. We're very familiar with verses 9 and 10. But let's keep reading. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. It's interesting how Peter ties 
submitting to the government with a holy life first. Does he start with submitting to the government? Does he talk about abstaining from passions of your flesh? So here's a warning to us as Christians. Before we try to change the laws and influence the political process, we need to evaluate ourselves and let the gospel penetrate our hearts so that we're living holy lives of gratitude for the amazing grace God has extended to us in Christ. Now, what does he say there? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors. Now, a little bit of history. Who's the emperor when Peter's writing this? Does anybody know? Around 80, 64, 65, 66, Nero is the emperor. What do we know about Nero? Nero put to death Peter. Nero put to death Paul. Nero would light Christians on fire to light up his garden. This is what he would do. He'd take Christians, dip them in pitch, put them on a stake, light them on fire so that his gardens would be lit up at night. He burned down Rome and blamed it on the Christians. Now, when you know how sadistic Nero is, and what does Peter say here? Honor the emperor. Now, does that mean that you have to agree with everything the emperor says? Can you honor the office of president without agreeing with everything the president does? Can you show honor to the president or leaders by praying for them while not agreeing with some of their policies? Okay. So this is not a blanket, hey, I'm going to support you in everything you do. There's a way to honor leaders because God has ordained them for reasons we may not know at times. Ultimately, God ordains leaders. Why does God ordain leaders? Notice what he says there. Look at verse 14. And, and Paul's going to say this in Romans chapter 13. The purpose of government is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Any government established on earth should be doing those two things. The government exists to punish evil and to reward those who do good. So when you vote or when you look at a platform or you look at a person or you look at an initiative, you have to ask that question. Is this punishing evil and promoting good? Or is it punishing good and promoting evil? And what happens if you don't have a choice? It's all evil. The purpose of governments is to punish evil and to reward good. Now, if a government's corrupt and not doing that, God may bring punishment to that nation. God may judge that nation. God may give that nation over to what it wants. I'm reminding of that verse in Isaiah that says, you call good evil and evil good. You twist things around. So when a nation moves away from doing that, God may just take his hand off that nation and say, go your way. Or he may bring some serious judgment. We don't know. Okay? We also have seen... Biblical examples of situations where believers influence the government. 
We see it all throughout the Bible. Remember Daniel? Daniel goes before King Nebuchadnezzar and basically says, listen, you're not, you're not having good policies here. Daniel 4.27. This is Daniel speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, does Daniel go in there and say, King, you're an idiot? What does he say? Oh, King, I've got some advice. Would you please accept my counsel? You're not acting righteously. You're actually oppressing your people. You need to stop. Okay? So Daniel influenced a king to start doing the right thing. He's using his political position to influence the decision makers of his day to do good for society. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah commands the Israelites when they're taken into captivity to do something very specific. You remember what happened to Israel? They were, in Bab- they were, in, they, they were taken into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They were taken out of Jerusalem, displaced to a different area 900 miles away or so. What does Jeremiah tell them to do when they've been displaced from Jerusalem, from Israel? Jeremiah 29.7 Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of your city. Where are we living? Most of us in Sterling or let's just say northeastern Colorado. Do we want to seek the welfare of where we live? How do you do that? You pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when the city is doing well, you're being blessed by being part of a city that's doing well. So are you praying for your city? One of the things we do on Sunday night prayer meeting a lot is we will pray specifically for issues related to our city. This past Sunday night, we prayed for law enforcement. We prayed for NJC. And what else did we pray for? We prayed for... What did we pray for? Dodie, you were there. Well, we pray for the election. I'm trying to think of something specifically to Sterling. Law enforcement, NJC. We prayed for hospitals before. I mean, it wasn't... I'm trying to remember. Jerry, what, what did we pray for? We, it was something local that we prayed for um, specifically. Um, we prayed for jobs. We prayed for the economy. We prayed for um, against drugs and alcohol. We prayed for, against abuse. Oh, we prayed for the school district because of the, the, the financial issues. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that we'll just pray specifically for the welfare of our city because the Bible here says, pray to the Lord on its behalf or in its welfare, you'll find its welfare. Okay. What about Joseph? He was the second highest in command in Pharaoh's court. He had great influence on the decision-making when you go back and read that story. So he used his influence in government. How about Moses? He went directly to the king and said, let my people go. I mean, he influenced the political process pretty straightforward, didn't he? I'm going to throw down some plagues if you don't let us go. <laughs> okay. What about Nehemiah? Nehemiah, yes. And, and Moses sets a good example of how God uses the heart of the ruler. Yeah. And then that one, he hardened the heart of the ruler. He hardened the heart of the ruler to do what God wanted him to do. I will raise you up for this purpose. Uh, Nehemiah was cut bare to the king. And he had access to the king to be able to do what? He went back to the king and said, listen, I need all these supplies. 
because my city is in ruins and we need to rebuild the wall. And the king said, take whatever you need. So he was able to use that position in government to get something done for God. Esther, she became queen. She had a significant influence on the decision-making in Persia so that, what is his name? Um, um, gosh, I just forgot his name. Um, Haman would not do genocide on the Jews. Okay. What about John the Baptist? He wasn't afraid. He's in prison. He got in the face of King Herod and accused him of adultery. What did he say in Luke chapter 3? So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. John basically went up to the king, Herod, and said, you are not allowed to have incest with your brother's wife. And Herod said, I want to hear that. Locked him up and eventually had his head chopped off and wanted his head delivered on a platter. What about Paul? Paul was the greatest church planner and missionary that we've ever seen, going from town to town, planting churches. But you know what happens there at the end of Acts? He gets arrested. And what does he say? I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights to go all the way to the top and appeal to Caesar. So the last, those last few chapters in Acts, Paul actually comes before the leaders to plead his case to influence the political system. He didn't sit back and say, well, you know, if it's God's will, I stay in prison. It's God's will. No, he actually went through the process of a Roman citizen to make sure that his rights were being upheld. Um, now, he couldn't control the outcome because he still was in house arrest, but at least he went through the channels of what he could do to get to the top. And so in Acts 24, 24 through 25, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Felix was a little upset that Paul was preaching the gospel to him and came under conviction and said, I don't want to to hear you anymore. So you see people influencing the government. The bottom line is we must live under the authority of these God-ordained governments. Turn to Romans chapter 13, where Paul is going to teach the same thing that Peter taught. So it's in two places in the New Testament, and it's also here in Ecclesiastes in a roundabout, I mean, not as explicit as what Paul and Peter are saying in the New Testament, but be wise in the way that you act towards the king when you've kept an oath to him. So Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Isn't that what Peter said? Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. 
Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. We don't like that when we don't get a good tax return and we have to pay taxes, right? <coughs> to whom taxes are owed, send it. Revenue, respect. Be subject to the governing authorities. And I, and I shared that verse earlier in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God has ordained the governing authorities. God sets up kings and deposes kings. And so we are to submit to the government. Now, let me just ask you a question. Is that carte blanche where we sub- subject the government no matter what? Okay, there is an exception here. Okay. There is an exception here where it comes to how we are to submit to government. We are called to submit to the government so far as it does not conflict with God as the superior authority. What does verse 1 say? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God is the highest authority. So if there is a law passed tomorrow that says you cannot share your faith, do we obey that law? What if there's a law passed tomorrow that says you can no longer read your Bible? Do you obey that law? A law tomorrow says everybody has to convert to Oprahism. I don't know, paganism. <laughs> Do you obey that law? Okay. What happens if there's a law passed that says you can no longer publicly gather for worship? Do we just stop meeting together? We may not meet here. We may have to meet in people's homes underground. There may be one day where this church is vacant because it's illegal to meet publicly. Who knows? We see what Peter and John and the early apostles said when they were brought before the council and whipped and questioned. Acts 5, 27 through 29. When they had brought them, they set them before the council And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. What are they saying? Don't share the gospel anymore or you'll be punished. And what do they say to the leaders? We respond to a higher authority God has given us the great commission to share the gospel. We cannot obey you in this. We have to obey God and face the consequences. So, we're left with the lingering question, how does this all intersect with the gospel? And so let me just tell you, if I have a choice between exercising my right to vote and sharing the gospel, I would share the gospel hands down every time because it's the only thing that's the power of God for salvation of all who believe. Now, let me qualify that statement, if I had the choice. Now, right now, I have the choice to do both. Cultural transformation through political processes will be helpful in addressing social issues and possibly making America a better place to live. But true cultural transformation will only come when Christians act as salt in life and live out the implications of the gospel in our lives philippians 3:20 but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await the savior the lord jesus christ now back to ecclesiastes 
What did he tell us in those first five verses? We are to be wise in the way we act towards the king who's supreme. Now, we don't have kings today. We're not in Israel. But by extension, what does the New Testament tell us to do? Be subject to the governing authorities and to honor and pay taxes and to respond to the government the way God would call us to respond by seeking wisdom. And let me just say this. In future days when the government may be less inclined to value our values, it's going to require more wisdom to know how to be a Christian. Have you ever thought about that? Our parents and grandparents didn't have to really pray for wisdom on how to be a Christian in America. Did they? Now, I'm not saying that it's going to be bad right now, but your kids and grandkids and maybe some of us that are younger, as we get older, we may need to be praying for wisdom on how to be a Christian in a nation that may, quickly or slowly, we don't know, not like Christianity. So this is very practical. How do you pray for wisdom in submitting to a government that may not like what you believe in? Okay, so let's let's shift gears because he shifts gears here in Ecclesiastes really sharply. Verses 6 through 9, here's, here's the second big thing he addresses. We are totally unable to know the future or control the present. <laughs> a lot of hope there, right? Okay, so look at what he says in verse 6. There is a time... Familiar, right? There is a time... And a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Hasn't he already told us this? Turn back to chapter 3. To everything, turn, turn, there is a season and a time. Look what he says, chapter 3. For everything, that's what, everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. We talked about how God is meticulously and sovereignly in control of all things. What kind of things? A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, a time to kill, a time to heal. All these expressions of the human life from cradle to grave, God is sovereign over those. There's a time and appointed time for all these things. He's reiterating it right here. He says there's a time and a way for everything, but what's the problem? You're confused. You're vexed. You're upset. There's trouble lying heavy on you because verse 7, you don't know what is to be. No one can tell you what is to be. What's the problem? Since we cannot know the future, oftentimes we live in fear and anxiety. Anybody anxious about the future from time to time? Do you know when you're going to die? Do you know when, okay, all those things he listed, do you know when there's going to be a time of peace, a time of war, a time of healing, a time of mourning? Can you control those things? You don't know. And so not knowing when those things are going to happen, Solomon's saying the trouble lies heavy on your heart. You can be waiting up nights just stressed because of the future that you don't know. And he says, nobody can tell me. Can't go to a fortune teller. You shouldn't go to a fortune teller anyway. Nobody can tell me what's going to happen in the future. And not only that, he says, 
sometimes even living in the present, you can't control stuff. And he lists some things here. This is where a translation issue comes in. First, when he says, we can't control the wind. Now, the ESV says in verse 7, um, I'm sorry, verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit. The word spirit there is ruach, um, which is the Hebrew word for wind, spirit, breath. It's kind of an elastic term. I think he's actually talking not so much about controlling your breath. I think he's talking about you can't control the wind. Anybody want to go out to a hurricane and say, hey, you want to stop blowing wind just for maybe like five minutes? Anybody can control the wind? We can't control the wind. Anybody here want to control the wind? Okay. Number two, he says, we can't control the day of our death. What's the second thing he says here? No man has power to retain the spirit or hold back the wind or power over the day of death. When death comes, do you have power over it? Whenever that day is. Can you look death in the eye and say, um, not today, if it's God's ordained time for you? You could try to say that, but if it's God's ordained time for you to die, do you have power over it? Okay, number three, he gives a very specific example, but by extension, we can't control many of life's situations like being discharged from war. He says, um, there is no discharge from war, meaning if you're going out to war and you're enlisted in the military, you may be enlisted for a long time and never get a discharge. In other words, there just may be life situations you can't get out of because of the way life works. Then, if you're a wicked person, he gives you a warning. Number four, the wicked will eventually suffer the consequences of their sin. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. There's going to be a day of reckoning for the wicked. You can't escape it. And then number five, he says, powerful people will continue to hurt those less powerful. Verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all this done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So here's the situation that Solomon's, Solomon is troubled in his soul, staying up at night, thinking to himself, I am stressed out about the future. I'm stressed out about my present. I don't know the day of my death. I can't control natural disasters. I can't control the way people are treating me. I can't control life situations. I am out of control and it bothers me. So here's the question. How do you stay grounded and sane in all of this? What's his point? Answer. Stop. Take a deep breath. Ask God for wisdom. Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So, in times of struggle, in times of trial, in times of uncertainty, in times of wanting to know the future, is it okay to ask God for answers? Yes. Pray for wisdom. Pray for answers. Ask God to reveal to you what's going on. Seek counsel from somebody else. Don't go it alone. Don't just be one of these Christians that grins and bears and like you're a hyper-Calvinist where everything's already preordained, so I just have to live with it. Don't be that type of Christian. 
Yes, God's in control, but that doesn't mean that you have to live in crippling fear that everything's all worked out. God gives you permission to go and ask for wisdom. But, we'll get to this in a minute, He may not give you an answer. And you've got to be okay with that. Okay? So, number one, seek wisdom when you're dealing with governing authorities. Seek wisdom when you don't know the future and sometimes you can't control the present. Then number three, he says, when you see injustice in the world, remember to fear God. Verses 10 through 15. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised. In the city where they had done such things, this is also vanity. What's he saying here? These wicked hypocrites walked into church and put on a good face and acted all that, and everybody praised them, and they were, you know, they were accepted in the house of God, and they looked all good on the outside, but everybody knew they were wicked, and they just let them get away with it. And then he saw them go get buried, and they had a good proper burial, and everybody showed up at the funeral and said good things about them. But the whole time, they're hypocrites. And what's he saying? I can't stand that. That's basically what he's saying. Look at what he says there. Verse 11. This is or the end of verse 10. This is vanity. This is absurd. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. I want this guy to get justice and I want it to get done fast. He's getting away with murder. He's a hypocrite. He's wicked. He keeps sinning. He keeps sinning. Nothing ever happens. There's no consequences. God, would you move in and do it quickly? You ever thought that before? God, take care of this person now. Get him what's, give them what's coming to them. His big question is this. Why do the wicked prosper? Sinful people seem to keep doing more sinful things, having fun doing sinful things, getting popular, getting powerful, getting prestigious with doing sinful things, never suffering the consequences of those sinful things, and actually maybe getting better and higher and advancing by doing those sinful things. And what's my temptation when I see that? Well, I may be tempted to join the wickedness. Since they're getting away with sin and having so much fun, why don't I just join in? Because obviously, it must must pay to to be sinful because you're never going to get punished. What does Solomon tell us to do? Continue pursuing wisdom by fearing God. God. Look what he says in verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. What is he saying there? They keep sinning and sinning and sinning a hundred times and they they keep living longer and prospering and nothing ever happens to them. Yet I know that it will be well with those who do what? Fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God before God. What does Solomon say? When you see the wicked prospering, when you see them getting away with it, you need to realize that you don't give in to that. God will take care of that. Your responsibility is to fear the Lord. 
Proverbs 10.27, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. So we're wondering here, along with Solomon, in light of injustice and wondering why God doesn't execute punishment right away on the wicked, how should we respond to all this? He also says we can't control the future and sometimes we can't control the present. So what's he saying, okay? You've got wicked governments sometimes. You don't know the future. Sometimes you can't control the present. You see the wicked prospering. You look at all of this and it lays heavy on your heart. You're to fear God, but how are you to act in all of this? And it's something we've seen over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. What does he say? Look at verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that's all vanity. Look at verse 15. I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What can we control? We can be joyful. That's what he said last week or a couple weeks ago. When you live in the stresses of life, you don't know the future, you're tempted to freak out, everything's anxious, you don't know what's going on, Solomon says right in the middle of that, he's going to commend to us joy. And what's he going to tell us? How do we become joyful? We eat, drink, and enjoy the daily gifts that come from the gracious hand of God. Have we not seen this before? This is the fourth time he's told us this. Go back to chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. Chapter 2, 24 through 26. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Sound familiar? Chapter 3, verse 12 through 13. I perceive there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Turn to chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. Behold, what have I seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this also is the gift of God. So what's he telling us to do? can't control the future sometimes you can't control the present what can you control i'm going to choose and pray for wisdom and ask god to give me joy and i'm going to eat drink and enjoy today he's told us that four times must be important eat drink enjoy your job this is a gift from god be joyful also we need to remember this even when we see the wicked prospering, we do know that there will be a day when God will execute justice on the wicked and they won't get away with sin forever. It's not our job to mete out justice and vengeance on those that do us wrong. God will do that. 
God may never punish them or they may never experience the consequences in this life. That's why it's frustrating at times. But will they eventually face the consequences? Yes. John 5, 28-29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus tells us parable in Matthew 13, 47-50. Where are you, Scripture? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is God going to work it all out at the end? Yes. Does He work it all out in our lifetimes? No. Does He work it out oftentimes for us to see? Sometimes, maybe, probably not. We don't know. Is there going to be a final day where God's going to bring justice once and for all? Yes. So you can rest in the fact that God is just and they're not going to get away with it forever. Okay, here's the, the last thing he teaches us in verses 16 and 17. We are totally unable to know the hidden mysteries of God's providence. I, I was just meditating on this passage of Scripture this week when I was pre- preparing it. Who's, we just need to step back and ask ourselves, who's writing this? Well, God, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. So if the wisest man who ever lived is having problems understanding things, what does that mean for us? Notice what he says there in verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, when I pursued wisdom, which I should, when I sat down and diligently pursued it, when I thought things through, when I tried to look for answers, to see the business that's done on earth, to figure things out, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. I stayed up late at night. I had sleepless nights trying to figure this all out, looking at all these things. I saw the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sin. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Three times, what does he say? Cannot find it out. So should we diligently pursue wisdom? Yes. Pray for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Seek wisdom. Ask God for answers. Pray. Search the scriptures. Go before the Lord. Submit to Him. Don't fret about the future. Enjoy God's gifts. Submit to the governing authorities. But yet, at the same time, he concludes by saying, at the end of the day, there may just be some things you will never figure out. And God may do some mysterious things that you have no idea what he's doing. And if you claim to think you know what God's doing, you really are kind of a liar because you don't. That's what he's saying there. Even though a wise man claims to know it, he can't find it out. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God, 
but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Two things in that passage of Scripture. There are some secret things that God chooses not to share with us. They're secret. Does he have a, does he, is he obligated to share those with us? No. Does he sometimes share those with us? Maybe. But they're secrets that only God keeps. But what's the second half of the verse? But the things that are revealed, what are the things that are revealed? The things he's given us in Scripture. What are we to do with those things? We're to obey. We're to, we're to obey the things we know, but there are some things we may never know. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. Sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. Listen to Job. Um, Job went through suffering and he made some interesting statements in his, in his book. Job 11, 7 through 8. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? <laughs> Have you ever wanted to say that before? Can you find out the deep things of God? What's the, what's the, what's the, um, the answer to that? Uh, no, you can't. Job 26, 14. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job 37, 5. God thunders wondrously with His voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Many of you have probably never heard of William Cooper. He's a British poet that wrote some famous hymns. He was born in 1731 in England. He was six years old when he was sent to boarding school where he was bullied routinely. In 1748, he enrolled in Middle Temple in order to pursue a law degree. And shortly afterwards, he fell in love with Theodora Cooper, a cousin of his. Now, his father, her father did not approve, and their relationship ended in 1755 left him heartbroken because this was his first love. In 1763, he was offered a clerkship in the House of Lords, but he had a nervous breakdown under the strain of studying for an upcoming test that he actually experienced a period of insanity. Three times he tried to commit suicide. He was sent to an asylum for recovery. One night, he decided to commit suicide by drowning himself. So he called a cab, a chariot, or a carriage, to take him to the Thames River and just take me to the Thames River. I'm going to throw myself in and drown. Well, the fog became so thick that the cab couldn't find the river. So driving around for a while, got lost, and finally he found himself on his own doorstep. He brought him back to his own house. In 1763, he entered an insane asylum that was run by a man named Dr. Nathaniel Cotton. He was an evangelical Christian who witnessed to William Cooper. 
William found a Bible lying on a desk and began reading upon Romans 3.25, where it says God set forth Jesus as a propitiation for his blood. He was flooded with tears, realizing that Christ had died for him. And that night in the insane asylum, he trusted Christ for salvation. And he decided to stay another year in the care of Dr. Cotton. Well, then later on, he settled down with a retired clergyman named Morley Unwin and his wife, Mary. And Cooper grew to become such good terms with the Unwin family that he went to live in their house and he moved with them to Olney where John Newton lived. You guys know who John Newton? He wrote Amazing Grace. He was the former slave trader. Um, he was no longer a slave trader. He was a pastor now, John Newton. Um, Morley Unwine was killed in a fall from his horse, but Cooper continued to live in the Unwine home and became extremely attached to his to, to, to the wife kind of as a mother figure. She was the mother he never had. And so Newton... John Newton and him became, like, became a disciple of John Newton. They began to write hymns together. And um, in 1779, they, they wrote a hymnal. Uh, there's a fountain. You guys know that song, There's a Fountain? The famous song that William Cooper wrote was God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Newton was his pastor for 13 years and became a lifelong friend. And most people believe if it had not been for the encouragement of John Newton, Cooper would have committed suicide. Now, it's 1773. Cooper's now engaged to Mrs. Unwin. He experienced a new attack of insanity. Imagining not only that he was condemned to hell eternally, but that God was actually calling him to commit suicide. His entire life, he struggled with depression, insanity, suicidal tendencies, but he never actually committed suicide. God sovereignly protected him from that. He died in 1800 of dropsy. Now you may ask yourself, can good, solid Christian people experience extreme bits of depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and you have to say yes is there times when life gets to be so overwhelming that you just can't figure things out what does solomon say look back there in verse six there is a time and a way for everything although man's trouble lies heavy on him are there times when troubles lie heavy on you and you have no idea what God's doing. And you're trying to figure it out. You're trying to figure it out. You ask why. You ask why. And you never know the answer. Solomon says, sometimes that happens in the life of a Christian. You may seek answers. You may ask. You may plead. You may beg. And you still might not find out. So let me give you the words to God moves in a mysterious way. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, his tre- He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread 
are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Sometimes you just go through stuff. And it's frustrating, it's agonizing, you pray for wisdom, and you don't get an answer. But God is sovereign. He works in a mysterious way. And it's a cliche, God works in mysterious ways. But it's true. There are secret things. But I want to leave you with hope because we have Romans chapter 8, 28 through 32. What does the Bible say for us as believers, regardless of what we go through? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might become the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Is God sovereignly working out His will for your good? Yes. Does it seem good at the time? No. Can you trust that God will take care of you? Yes. Can anybody bring a charge against you? Is God ever against you? Is God always for you? Why is He for you? Because He chose you, He predestined you, He called you, He's going to sustain you to the end, and He sent Jesus to die on the cross so that you could experience all the blessings of God. So no matter what you go through, what's the one thing that can never be taken away from you? God. He will never leave or forsake you. He will be with you to the end. He will be your solid rock. It may seem mysterious, and you may not actually know what He's doing, but one thing you do know, it's for His glory and it's for your good. And at the end of the day, you have to rest in that, even though you don't have all the answers. Seek wisdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God may not give you an answer, but He may give you peace. What is Philippians 4? By prayer and supplication, present your request to God... And the peace of Christ, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. God may not give you the answer, but He may give you peace. And that's enough, isn't it, sometimes? Just to know the peace that God's in control. You may not know the answer, but He may give you peace. And you've got to be able to live with that. And then He will give you joy in the midst of that. So I think Solomon's sometimes saying, take a chill pill, relax, and go enjoy a nice meal. And enjoy your work. And go out and get a big Dr. Pepper. Go out and get a big whatever drink you prefer. And hang out with friends and enjoy the, the moment. Because you don't know the future and you can't control stuff. Enjoy the moment that God's given you right now and live in the present of that and realize that everything He's given you is a gift and find joy and solace in that and peace in that. Because He's never going to leave you or forsake you. He's got your back. Trust in Him. Easier said than done, but I think that's what... Solomon's saying. Any other questions or comments tonight?
This book's been good, has it not? It's been very practical yet very challenging, and I think it's dealing with every issue that we deal with. Work, friends, future, stress, government, God's sovereignty, joy, and we've still got a few more weeks left. All right, if there's nothing left, let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you that you do work in mysterious ways. You're not obligated to tell us how you work. I'm just thankful that you do work, that you never sleep and you never slumber, and that you are for us, not against us, and that you are our solid rock and you never let us go. You never leave and you never forsake us and you work all things out for good. Lord, it's my prayer if there's anybody in this room tonight that's just struggling with things about the future, maybe they're stressed out, maybe they're just um, unsure. It's, as Solomon says, it's laying heavy on their heart. Would you give them peace? Would you give them joy? Would you give them the assurance to know that you're in control? Lord, help them just to reach out to you and, and pray for wisdom. And Lord, most of all, help us to just rest in your presence to know that you are our great God and you sent Jesus to die in our place that we might experience all the blessings that flow from the cross for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.